Unexpected. Unpredictable. Inspiring. Fringes Universal. Fringe is daring. Wackadoodle. Wild. Really amazing. Awesome. awesome. Bear. Camp. Terrific chaos. Chaos. You're listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. In this episode, we ask, what would you do if you won the lottery? Go back to school. I would become a permanent, full-time professional student. Pay off all my debts and my friends' college debts, and then go on vacation. Uh, Set up a trust fund that bought real estate around the world, and then I would travel. 50% charity and 50% investment. You have to do something. Because sitting around on a big stack of money with nope, nothing to No, I'm do not talking about that lottery. That's a, that's a good I'm talking about this one. Behind this wall over here, there's the bingo cage that we use at the lottery night. And if your number is pulled, then you get to be in the Fringe Festival. And it's as simple as that. It's a lottery we didn't get in. Thank God for that year we were not ready. <laughs> I applied for a fringe spot. My ball was the last one pulled for small venues. I squealed. And we applied again next year. We got in. It's random. So with a fringe, you can make anything you want. You don't have to convince anyone that anything you're doing is any good. The fringe allows for people not to worry about like what's marketable. I had written a show that I was really proud of and I was having a hard time finding other people who wanted, you know, provide money for it. And the Fringe was a really inexpensive way to get it seen and to kind of put it up on its feet and see how it worked. We just want to tell stories and the things that matter to us. I think the first season or so of Will and Grace, they're really mean to each other. Now that was on while I was in like high school, college. Um, But I was trying to figure out who I was as a gay person and where I fit in in that community. And the only representations that I would see were people like that who were catty and part of why I didn't come out for a long time I think for myself was I I didn't see I didn't see people who were just they were just gay people who were strong and awesome and doing great things and the first thing you noticed about them wasn't necessarily that they were gay you're rewarded for taking those risks Bollywood is very over the top very colorful a lot of costuming a lot of sets we're just telling stories and doing the work that everyone else around us is doing and it's not this is a woman's work. I I push back a little when people expect it to be a certain thing and then they get not upset but they're sort of like oh what what is it that you're doing here? They were like what is going on? (laughs) I'm not just a quirky girl like a lot of the scripts descriptions of the characters I play say. This is why I always encourage young artists and especially actors to start writing even if you don't think you can the fringe gives you such a great opportunity to to try something out like that you can really find out what kind of artist you are please let us be here it's the most beautiful thing it takes all of that part of the process out you just create your material and then if you get in which is great right then you're supported anybody can do fringe Anybody can do it. And we have a support system here to help you. Sometimes the hardest thing about putting up a show, that biggest barrier, is the production. How do I find a venue? Don't worry, we've got that covered. What about box office? Don't worry, we got that covered. I don't know anything about lights. Don't worry, we have industry professionals here ready to help you. And the the entry bar is so low. The producer fee is really very affordable for what you're getting. The fee was reasonable and then being able to have five shows and 
it felt feasible. It felt like a way to produce art that I could do and that wouldn't overstress me out for my first time as a producer. There are so many people who do this for the first time every single year. And some of them just do it once. They just want to get that story off their chest. Some people do it once and realize this story is what some people want to hear and I can tour it to organizations or other fringes. I'm especially excited to bring it to the Mayo since it's such a world center for health and medicine. And some people go on to say, oh, that was an amazing first time process. I've learned so many things and I want to try it again, but I want to do it better. His senior year, he decided that he was going to put in an application for the fringe. To all of our surprise and excitement, his number was was pulled from the bingo cage and he produced and directed his very first play. And uh, in turn, he wound up going to school and studying drama and he's now at NYU at the drama school. The 2019 Fringe Lottery is being held on February 25th at 7 p.m. at Can Can Wonderland in St. Paul. You have until February 14th to put in your application. I'll put some links in the show notes where you can find more information at questionpodcast.com. Of course, if you do win the lottery, you'll have to come up with a show. We have a title. A working title. I always think I'm behind, but you know what? I'm actually right on course. I'm way behind schedule from what I wanted to be. I've got the outline, uh, kind of the structure of it written out, uh, but I still need to write half a dozen songs. We're really, really happy with the way the show is shaping up. Creating something brand new has been so just exciting. And, you know, we've never really had an experience like this before. Even though I may not know exactly my script yet, I know that it's in the works. Hi, my name is Travis Carpenter. I am the writer and director for The Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist, or Ocean's 8. Even I'm finally figuring out how to pronounce the title for the show. Zed is a wild card from Calgary. Leather pants, eye patch. Zed? I'm guessing it's with a, a Z. A dagger Maybe strapped it's just to her Z? arm hey, and her leg, probably. Like we need some trickery. <laughs> you got a buddy who's a close-up magician. To encourage Josephine to take what's yours. Right? My name is uh, Aaron oh. Cook, and I'm the handsome magician. <laughs> <laughs> I think I still might have a magic kit. We're doing a heist. Uh, we're going to have a getaway. We need a truck driver. Carla drives truck. Uh, but Carla's also Canadian. like, well, I don't know if we should steal or not. Uh, so you'd be kvetching the whole time. This is not like your normal theater, right? So like, you're used to very structured, like rehearsals from this time to this time. A lot of times you have a script before you start, which isn't the case with most Fringe shows. The very first year that he asked me to do this, sure, if you can get me the music by like March or April and I can work on it, that would be great. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Got to be about June. I, I, I've heard all the comments about a desire to prepare, a want to have a script sooner. Uh, I hear and respect all of these cries, and I take them home with me every night. So when will the script actually be done? I mean, is that okay? I'm really serious. Like, what, what is... <laughs> when, when's... When, seriously, when... Seriously. Like... <laughs> It'll, it'll be done. Honestly, uh, I would love for it to be done. Um. 
I'm with you. <laughs> uh, if I if I could pull it out of my backpack right now, I would. Um, and, and and that's the. Uh, and what do we mean by done anyway? <laughs> is, this, is this is this first draft? Right. It's all. It's a work in progress. It's, it's, you know, that's the mark of a true artist is to know when to put the paintbrush down. Yeah. It's it's one of the things where uh, you know, working a day job, I have a family. It, it's hard to it's hard to carve out the time, right? And then when you do have when I do have the time, the motivation isn't always there because you know. Uh, get through all the rigors of the day, and sometimes you just want to kick off your shoes and not worry about anything. So it's it's uh, it's hard to force the creativity, but at the same time, um, looming deadlines often inspire quite a bit. Under this stressful rehearsal circumstances, you can I don't want to say dread coming to practice, but like oh I have to keep my energy up. It's been a long day, but what I always find every day is that. Every day I feel that way, but then every day after I leave practice, I go, oh, I actually feel better and happier, and that was a really nice release, and particularly today after a stressful day at work, it was awesome to just sing your lungs out <laughs> in a judge-free zone with other people doing the same thing. So I feel better about life stresses after having come here today and just sang for two hours. It's a little crazy, a little fun, a little intense, it comes together quick. You rock it out, and that's it, and then it's over. It's only five shows. We're right there. We're right where we need to be. We've done this before. Yes, we have to work hard, but that's what we signed up for. This is the fringe experience. Like This is what we talked about on day one. You're down, and you're, you're grinding, and it's frustrating, and it's a late night, but the payoff is everything. We're here at the Fringe Unified Auditions. At the Phoenix Theater, it is a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I actually originally am from California. I moved here to pursue musical theater and, and opera, actually. Certainly whenever anyone new to town comes here, the thing I tell them is go be part of the Fringe. Go do a Fringe show, produce a Fringe show, uh, act in a Fringe show, go see as many shows as you can, go to the after parties, talk with people, find out who you click with. Find out what they can offer you, find out what you can offer them, and um, companies get formed that way. A lot of producers and directors are sitting in one room. You go in. And there's like, whew, like 40, 50, 60 plus people out there staring right at you, and they have their little pads and pens and everything, and they're making notes about you. So, I mean, anyone who's even remotely self-conscious is going to go, oh gosh. And then you're done. 20 people greet you, it's like, oh, it, it feels more like a show than an audition. It's a little bit easier to audition for a whole room of people and just one or two folks like that, so. They know exactly what they're looking for and I'm not it, so I just do my best and not really worry about it too much. If anything, I'm just being more visible to the directors in town. I always forget about that, but it's so scary. Just knowing that all the feelings about auditions are valid, most people have them. Going out auditioning to get a job, which first of all is the worst possible way to get a job. Just auditioning is the worst. It was a lot less painful than I thought it was going to be for sure. Super nervous, but uh, I remembered everything and uh, yeah. You know, there's always like some butterflies and jitters before every audition, but then, but then you just kind of just do it and it's just like after like, you know, doing it for a while, it kind of just becomes like 
just part of the part of the process. Use the nerves, you know, that can be good. That can give you some good energy for what you're doing. Breathe. So many people forget to breathe and then they speed through their pieces and you can hear them getting out of breath and the nerves keep going because they're getting out of breath. So take the moment to set yourself before you go and then breathe through your piece. It's not for the faint of heart. I used to get really freaked out and think that every audition was the end of the world, end of my career, whatever. No, it's not. It's not. When I uh, first took the stage at Acme back in 2008, after a weird year of three funerals and a wedding, I finally had the courage to uh, perform for real. And it was the longest 90 seconds of my life. That's your moment to take the stage, take a couple of deep breaths, and just do your very best. It's all about when you're ready. Uh, my aunt, who's an ordained minister in Wisconsin, said that to me when I, I talked about certain things in life, uh, when you're ready. And it's like, that makes perfect sense. And it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there as long as you get there. You know, practice doesn't make perfect. but Practice. We've all had bad auditions. We've all had more than one bad audition. I've even recently had some audition experiences that I just look back and I go, if I could delete that, I would. So just like with anything that you do in life, practicing makes you better. Feel ready and feel confident. Study whatever literature, whatever thing you are doing so that you're not just winging it. I just kind of go over the monologues that I feel are comfortable that show the range and that fit like I feel like fringe producers what they want to see. That's what I hate about auditioning is the monologues where I'm like what is the point? As a producer I don't think you get an accurate representation of somebody just from a one minute monologue or a cutting of a song. That's the thing for me is that I mostly just like do not think it's a very useful way of judging someone's talent. You know we used to think like well what if we just interviewed them you know like a normal interview and like just or just had them in and just had a conversation with the actor. That would be great. That would give us a really good indication of their personality and whether or not we like them as a person. But again we need to know if they can sing the song or you know we need to know if they can act. And so at some point, you do need to see them do that stuff. That's the thing. There's not really a better way. Personally, I like to go and see somebody do a show. Like, I like to see um, see them in production. That gives, I think, a better idea of, of how they are as a performer. But that's hard to do with everybody. One that's empathetic, one that's brave, one that listens one that engages, one that offers. An actor who offers, an actor to me is, is an actor who, who makes choices and tries, and tries out something, whether that's textual choices or you know, based on text or, or, or just action choices. But an actor that isn't there just to be puppeteered, an actor who offers an actor who, who is okay with failing because it's through failing that you find the things that work. It didn't feel like five hours. We just finished up five hours of seeing almost 100 actors uh, straight through with maybe one break where I got to step outside and I saw everything from a flute player to a clown uh, to Shakespeare and everything else in between. Some people were very physical, some people brought music, some people brought poems. Incorporating some way to show off that you are in command of your body is important. And that may very well simply boil down to when you walk in and you have presence and you, you say who you are, 
that may be enough. People who came in and demanded attention from the moment they spoke, um, you could feel the energy just vibrate through the room. Stage presence is the ability to be still and demand that people focus on you and doing it as effortlessly as possible. It does have to do with the humanity of what they brought to it and it has to do with like the physicality and the energy. I think less so the exact piece they brought. I, I'd love to see how, how you're engaged physically in what you want in a monologue, whether it be classic or contemporary or comedic or dramatic, and see that on someone's two feet or their back or whatever, rather than just be sitting in a chair. If you have an ability to throw in some other talent that goes beyond just your acting, whether it's movement or even playing music, go for it. Why not? When you, when you have producers that are seeing 100 actors a day, it's those kinds of things that, that pop out that gets our attention because it shows bravery. And I think bravery is key to not only being an actor, but, but being a producer and doing things like Fringe. And we want to work with people who are brave. I guess when you think about it, what you're risking is, is really kind of an internal thing. Feeling sad about not getting something or feeling rejected. That's all very internal and it doesn't really reflect how you are in the world. I think it's the fear that people won't like you. But that's not what it is. That's not what you're doing when you audition. You're just saying, hey, I'm available. I think that I'd be good for this part that you have. And the people say, we, we can't see you in the part. We're not tall enough or whatever. It's not that they don't like you. My problem for too long was lack of trying by saying, well, I'm going to auditions now. They're casting all brunettes and hey, I'm a blonde. People laugh, but I don't know how many people need a comedian. The hustle is, is real. Every performer faces slumps. They face anxiety. They wonder where their next gig is coming from. Yeah, no, and rejection is definitely part of it. But, you know, like all things in life, the good thing is having friends that care about you and your art and are supportive. It's all about the people you surround yourself with, the company you keep. If you're around people that encourage you, that makes a world of difference. Uh, I have that now. I didn't have that before. It's like that Green Day song, She. She figured out all her doubts were someone else's point of view. Eventually, I figured that out, too. I definitely cried a few times. I definitely had some moments where I was questioning, like, okay. There's so many reasons not to do it, but they're like, I don't know. It's that one thing. Like, you can't stop. Yeah, that's why I keep auditioning and keep putting myself out there, even if it's really scary. It's scary, yeah. People who aren't performers, they're like, how do you do that? How do you suffer the rejection? How do you do this, that, and the other thing? And it's like, well, because we love it so much. It's not, in the big scheme of things, it's not the biggest thing in the world. It's not the end of the world. So if you feel like you might want to give this a try, why not? I used to really be into theater when I was growing up, and I haven't done it in about uh, 10, 12 years since I was in high school. And uh, I wanted to get back into it, and I've... I've never been in the Fringe Festival before, but uh, I've heard nothing but good things, so figured I'd give it a shot. I hated waiting until I was 34, but uh, I mean, it truly was a perfect storm that you're uh, two funerals and a wedding where a coworker that was dying of cancer, that was where I went to his um, benefit event uh, for his medical bills. They had a silent auction and a gift certificate for Acme Comedy Club, and I heard in the back of my mind, uh, another reminder you haven't tried this yet why not so I was the winning bidder and that certificate I used the first night I went to Acme so I say I've got no excuses anymore and of course seeing him dying at such a young age only 39 it was unnerving it's like I don't want to be left with regrets
So we have writers, directors, actors, but there is more to putting up a great fringe show. You think you see it one way and then you find out, nope, it's something totally different. Um, I used to think all lightning was white and very bright and it sort of came from one direction. But when you see lightning happening in the sky, it sort of fans out and almost envelops an area. Say the clouds are more um, like a tornado's coming. The sky gets very green. And if you see lightning in that particular scenario, it's greenish as opposed to blue. That idea of a stormy night, how your eye perceives light, especially with lightning. And it's such a burst of light, but then your eyes have to adjust after that. So you get this beautiful flash of, of, of bluish white light. And then things go orange and yellow and then slowly fade into the blues and the purples. And you start to perceive everything around you as shifting or changing. Another another beautiful thing about uh, a stormy night is they can be a myriad of colors. A summer storm is vastly different than a winter storm. Or sunrises and sunsets. And the colors. Winter sunrises are almost like um, uh, a tutti-frutti ice cream with the purples and the pinks. Whereas in a summer sunrise, they're, they're almost like uh, fire with the oranges and the reds. I could describe uh, the natural, natural light in so many different ways, but now you have to figure out how is that going to be interpreted on stage. So if you want to put a storm on stage, you know that you're going to have to have a flash of light, something that causes everyone's eyes to dilate and then slowly come back. And you're going to have to then deal with what does the room look like once everybody's eyes adjust. And that is part of the challenge of creating a mood or even a space on stage. My name is Mitchell Frazier and I'm a technician for The Fringe. My name's Tony Starry and I've been a Fringe venue technician since 2010. Basically I owe my career to The Fringe. When I was in high school I wrote the then technical director a letter. He had no idea who I was and I was basically like I'll work for free. So I was a Fringe intern and they put me with one of the oldest grumpiest technicians they could find and I became friends with him. And Tanka sort of relished playing the role of the curmudgeon. A lot of what Tonko taught me um, in terms of who I was as a fringe tech was sort of that, uh, that as much as you want to sort of help all the artists do all of their things, part of your job is to remind them of what the limits of doing a fringe show are, to ensure that every show has access to the same resources. No show is getting preferential treatment. Part of your job is to help them understand the limits of the time and space they have and to help them fit their show into that. At 60 Minutes... The lights come on, the music stops, and the audience leaves because they've got to get to the next show. If I see an artist wants to use PowerPoint slides, I'll ask why. And if they say it's to tell me I'm in a kitchen, I'm going to say, you're going to spend hours programming the video and it's going to eat half of your tech time. Or here's a place where you can buy a really cheap kitchen table as a prop and your audience will go there with you. It doesn't stifle the creativity, but it helps focus it. No fire, no fog, please no glitter. You know, having grown up and being raised in Minnesota and being a naturally non-confrontational person, that can be problematic when someone's like, we really want to do this and you have to be like, well, we can't, so let's try this thing instead. Because the audience wants to make a connection to what's going on on stage and you're part of that connection. There's a performance in that, too. Um, running the board isn't just pushing the button. We're not just sitting there being like, all right, here go the lights. Theater's a collaboration. Ultimately, it is a collaboration 
of a director's point of view. They're the storyteller and they bring together actors and musicians and technicians and they create a whole and cohesive moment on stage. And if all those elements fit seamlessly together and you are just caught into the story, that's a successful lighting design. It's also a successful set design. It's very good acting. It's, that's when you really know. If the lighting helps to tell the story and you don't notice it, that's a great lighting design. Uh, I was on the beach probably three or four years old and I think it was in Miami. And my parents had took me, taken me down there for a vacation and I had a little toy that you uh, scoop sand with, it, it, like a, a, a revolving shovel. And you'd scoop up the sand and, and it was small and then the sand would spill out at the top and you'd scoop some more and a big wave came in and washed it into the ocean, never to be seen again. Oh, I was devastated. I cried. <laughs> but it didn't do any good. For me, the difference between story and memory, or story and uh, event, is the connections. Usually a story has within it a progression of some type. That progression doesn't need to be linear, it doesn't need to be ordered, it doesn't need to make sense, but it does need to have a flow to it that progresses from one thing to the next to the next. And that can be done in a variety of mediums. That can be done on stage, it can be done on screen, it can be done, I think, in visual art. It's harder. And oftentimes what you find are the story is unveiled through clues and context. You know, Renaissance painters were really good at this, where you would look at a painting and see that there's a symbol of this and this kind of animal and this is the place that they live and this is the tools on their desk and you can get a sense of who these people are and what their past was and where they are and what they think they're headed toward and all that story is embedded within just one single image. But it is about those connections and the connections are the thing that actually make that story emerge. Damien Hirst, he does a lot of things with collections of found objects and they'll just be arranged in a way, usually very symmetrical, like it might be bottles in a medicine cabinet or, or any other kinds of objects. But I remember the youngest of my three daughters, we were coming out of a Walker exhibit of Damien Hirst uh, pieces, and there was one of those sand ashtrays, and the butts were arranged in um, a very... Uh, a very symmetrical uh, circular way and even as she must have been three or four years old and she looked at that and she said you know that could be in the exhibit and just that way of, of looking at things differently not as art as just something precious hung on a wall but art as something of, of the way we process everything we see or hear even if it's not overtly presented as art with a capital A whether those connections are static or whether those connections are mobile. I mean, within the context of theater, it's almost always a progression of events from one to the next to the next and a leading sense of dominoes collapsing. For me, story is the process a character takes through an event. The difference between story and event is that story rides on the shoulders of character and somebody we can click with, some way when we can identify with, someone we can care about. And that's where I find my way, my path in through stories is, do I care about the journey of this person and their decisions and their connections? And the 
process they take through an event. Character transformation, an individual's transformation. So I can walk down the street from point A to point B, right? There's, there's nothing fundamentally interesting about that, right? But if during that walk somebody tries to mug me, now it becomes a story because it's not that the fact that someone tried to mug me, it's the fact that I was walking down the street feeling fine and then somebody approached me and suddenly I felt fear and I felt threatened. And then uh, I talked to this person, right? And, and we were engaging, right? And uh, maybe I'm getting my power back. I'm starting to feel a little bit different about this, right? And perhaps I talked them out of mugging me. That's a story, right? Me walking from my home to, to the diner isn't. I know that I've got a human character when, when, I, when I sit down and I want a character to do something because it'll make the scene work for me, but the character won't do it. You often hear people say that you're the most creative when you work inside of the, a particular box with a certain set of rules, right? And a lot of times creativity goes out the window or people get hamstrung where they can't think of anything creative to do when things are left wide open. But if you, if you give people some parameters to work inside of, a lot of creativity can come out of that restriction. And so that's what we see. When people are left to just experience the game without thinking about anything at all, they will create a character that will accept any quest that's given to them without thinking about why they're doing it. And now suddenly they've got this character that's all over the place, has no convictions whatsoever, and is just gathering up achievements. That's a very different experience than saying, I've got a character who's gonna work inside this box and I'm gonna be very creative inside here and I'm gonna do something really compelling. I wish my dog could tell me a story. And sometimes I wonder if he has narratives running in his head. He had a whole life before he came into my life. And sometimes I just wish, oh, I wish I knew your story. But I don't, I don't know if he tells a story. I don't know if that's a distinctly human thing. Part of me thinks then, then that it's just coded in our DNA. Because humans have to. I don't think we know how not to tell stories. We tell stories to warn people. We tell stories to educate. To share history. To share a connection with others. Express ourselves. That's the way I communicate and that's the way I make sense of the world. Right, right. It becomes a plot point. Something you can look at and go, okay, if I were writing this, what should happen next? And that's the way I think a lot of people make sense of the world. Stasis and stasis are the beginning and ends of drama, so that you're moving from one stasis to another stasis, and that everything in between is some degree of untenable. So someone takes an action, and the resolution of that action causes another action. When I'm directing or when I'm writing, I think about every scene needs to have decisions and discoveries in it. And so for me, as long as everyone is continually making decisions and discoveries, then the story is moving forward. And at any point where those decisions and discoveries do not matter to the falling dominoes of the narrative into the next stasis, then it no longer seems to be an essential scene or no longer needs to exist or no longer is fulfilling the purpose of story. When you tell me about who this character is, I want to understand what their day-to-day -day life is so that I can get a sense for why they do the things they do. And sometimes I think that's what stories are missing. They, they, they try to race too quickly to hero stage without first letting us experience the character when they're at the bottom. You probably know the Gilda Radner quote, not every story has a clear beginning, middle, and end. When you reframe it so that it does, it can be very therapeutic. You know, if I 
go through an experience and I may have mixed feelings about how it went. And then I can tell myself a little story about it. Say, oh, well, you got up that day and this happened and this happened and this was what you did and this is how it went. And maybe you're only at this part of the story or maybe this is the end of that story and it, it was quite a punchline and let's move on. I mean, I kind of process it in retrospect that way. So I think it's just a way of keeping, keeping ourselves alive and keeping the history alive. Making sense of things by reprocessing them as stories, I think, is what we're trying to talk about. Um, I would say if, if something, what's a good example? I want to give you an example because that would be better. Like, let's say you don't like our current president, for example. <laughs> Donald Trump. I can't understand supporting that guy, yet I have people in my life who I love who support him. You can experience that fully, right? You can be right in the moment with that viscerally and think about it as something that is wearing on you every single day. You can drive yourself crazy over it. You can give yourself a lot of pain over it. Or you can kind of broaden your vision to where you're aware of it and it's there and you know you can't change it at the moment and you're going to step away from it. And the way that I think storytelling helps is it's another way to broaden that, right? It's a, it's a way to broaden your perception of the thing that is bothering you and make it part of a story. It's not, this is how it's always going to be. It's, this is this part of the story. This is maybe a big challenge that comes up in this story, but it's probably not like, and then this was the end of the story and this is how we are forever. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I'm doing a terribly good job of explaining it, but it's, it's a way to step back and look at things as just things that you can detach from and make them into something that is easier to live with. Fundamentally, there's a commonality among all of us. And that creates that sense of community again and brings us back to, you know, people being in the room and wanting to listen to each other. And Gilgamesh, another one of my favorite shows, you know, it's a story that's thousands of years old that predates, you know, Christianity and Judaism. And yet, a guy sitting on a stage telling that story was riveting stuff, um, and it connects you to people 3,000 years ago. So it's, it's really fun stuff. If you step back and think of it as part of history or a part of a story, it can't possibly go on that way, right? At some point, something's got to give. It always does. So we got to write the rest of that story. Stories are the history of humanity. Not every community is well represented in the Minnesota Historical Society's collections, and one way of filling those gaps is through storytelling. Everyone owns a story. As Arthur Miller says in Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid to Willie Loman's life, uh, or Willie Loman's life is just going to be missed. In the same way, we're going to have moments in our life that are going to be missed. I have been on a train or a bus and I'm sitting next to someone. They appear to be homeless. They appear to be at least in a, in a, in a rough patch in their life. They want to talk. You know, put down my book, put down my phone, put down my paper, and just talk to them. And, and you find out, oh, they used to have a home in Excelsior, and, and then this happened, and that happened. And by the end of the ride, you feel like you've almost verbatim got a, a, 
a, a play right there. I mean, talk about art in your life. You just you just heard art on on the bus. We're going up to the California building next, and I'm looking for Candy Keen. Do you know Candy Keen? She's a fabric designer. Years ago, when I worked at Channel Two, I used to go out and interview people who nobody ever heard of, but who were fascinating. And I interviewed her in her studio, and she spoke very clearly about her art and then at the end I did to her what I did to everybody who was interviewed on our show I said Candy you have 60 seconds tell me the story of your life I like what Victoria had to say about the power of being in the same room with other people she captured the reason I like to host quoted socials every now and then. This is where we get people together to experiment with telling stories in a loosely structured format. It has been a lot of fun, and we would love to see you at an upcoming event. We'll be in Minneapolis on Friday, February 22nd, 7 p.m., Urban Forge Winery Insider House. If you want to participate in any pre-event assignments, you can RSVP at q at questionpodcast.com. Otherwise, just show up. Now, the power of getting out of the house. There's just something magical about you're in that room and the lights go down, or not, but the actors come out on the stage or the space, and it's just... What's going on? Where's this going? Where's it going to go? To me, it's just electric in the room, like, what's going to happen? There's always the chance for a surprise. Even the cast is never going to be exactly the same from performance to performance. But that audience is such a wild card in the way that it interacts with the cast. There's that audience reaction. I know I love a reaction from an audience. The laughter, the... Uh, little gasps or little like oh's you know those little sounds audible sounds that you hear an audience make sometimes uh. it's palpable that they can sense a vibe coming off the audience the fact that the audience is there I think is one of the one of the things that makes live performance so special I've really noticed it when I've been doing this show for kids you know I've been doing Romeo and Juliet with high school students and I know, because we, we do hear this, that there are some kids who've never seen a play, and then suddenly they're like, what is this? You know? Oh my gosh, this is happening in real time in front of me. I think that's incredibly eye-opening for them, and I think that they realize, oh, I really like that. I like that those performers can hear me laugh. I want to see your face as I tell you this story. I want to hear your response. I want your response to modify what I do. And I like that I'm affecting the mood in here and all of that. It's a very, it's pretty powerful if you've never experienced it before. Whenever I try to boil down what the dramatic art is at its most fundamental level, I get back to my friend Charlie Bethel's work. And his earliest work didn't have sound or lights or props or anything in it. It just had him and the audience. And so he would just walk the stage and tell these epic stories and bring you into it. What that does, why that is important, comes right down to this notion of, I am here. You are here. We are in this now. 
the physical presence of other people telling stories to each other. Even for something like, say, the Oscars, even if I'm in my home watching the Oscars, I like knowing that I'm watching it at the same time as other people. The gift of our time. We've all made a compact at that moment to share that time together, to tell the story, to hear the story, to communicate something that helps us understand each other. That's as old as humanity itself. People have been telling stories to each other for eons and that I think there's a real important reason why it still continues is because that's we're wired for that. We're wired to listen to others. We're wired to hear the human voice and pick it out from multiple sounds. And and when we see it on a stage, it it elevates the story from something that is just passive where you might flip on TV and watch something where you're you're an active participant. That element of being in the room with someone that minute of connection with the audience i guess i'm always looking for that it's such a it's such a high when it happens that makes me skeptical of plays that are too polished of plays that can exist without the audience present of plays that feel a little like they're in their own bubble i like the informalness of the fringe just because that's how theater should be that's how theater originally was you know the minstrel shows We're done at the markets. In a world where so much of the art and entertainment that we consume is so tweaked and polished and packaged and marketed, it's just something magical about seeing the spontaneity and knowing that you're seeing something that will never happen again in exactly that form. The corporate stuff is all easy. And, and basically watching network TV, the content on there, most of it is pre-digested. We don't have to think a lick. A good example is the laugh track on sitcoms. 30 Rock had no laugh track, which made it a great show. And just like The Office, there was no laugh track. Like you weren't forced to, to laugh because you hear the laughter. Watch, watch an episode of Cheers, the laugh track catches you off guard. I took the light rail here for our conversation today and you know no one's looking at each other everyone's got their head in their phone and don't get me wrong I do that sometimes too but it does seem like we're very isolated from each other sometimes. Too many people are sitting at home watching Netflix all the time. Get out of the house. So the clips you have been hearing are from the podcast Brian and I made for the Minnesota Fringe Festival. The Fringe is a performing arts festival that takes place in various cities, including Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I thought it would be fun to document the making of the festival. The 15-part series was called the Minnesota Fringe Cast and is still available in its original form at minnesotafringe.org. One of my favorite episodes was called Postcards from an Angel, where people talked about getting bitten by that pesky theater bug. I was in first grade, and my elementary school every year would go across the street to the high school where they would watch whatever the high school was doing on stage. And I remember watching Guys and Dolls and thinking, I want to be up there. 
I went to my brother's high school musical, Anything Goes, in 2006, and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I love this. My parents were really supportive. Behind closed doors, they probably flipped out a little bit, but they didn't ever let on to me that they thought, if they thought it was stupid, they never told me that. They definitely made sure that I thought about what were the backup plans, like what what if this doesn't doesn't work. So they were smart about it, but they never they never said don't do it. They never said it was a stupid idea. I was lucky in that regard. And this is something I've always wanted to branch out into is like performing art, but I never had the courage to do it in high school. And when I was in first grade, I couldn't have I couldn't have verbalized that in any way, shape, or form. I couldn't have said that's actually how I want to talk to people. I've had moments where I was really upset with myself for choosing this. (laughs) It's weird. I have never said to myself, I want to quit. But I have said to myself, I wish I could go back and choose a different path. I I wish I really liked numbers so I could be an accountant or something, you know? I mean, I used to love to draw when I was a kid, but I'm now going to be an accountant, so more of a math person. Sometimes I'm a little jealous of the people who just really love the stuff that that gets them a normal job with a regular paycheck and a, you know what I mean? You can always keep looking at the grass being greener somewhere else or you can choose to look at all the successes you have no matter how big or how small or all the things you have no matter how big or how small and to own that and to realize that uh, our lives are long and they can go a million different ways. Well, my parents, um, they're both deceased now, but they were really into art and music. My dad wanted to be a jazz pianist and a painter and a writer. Um, Instead, he was an attorney because that's what you did in the 40s. He was frustrated and disappointed in his life because he wanted to do those things and he wasn't able to do them until after he retired. You know, that's one reason that I really see the value of supporting people in the arts because I know how hard it is and I know a lot of people don't get to do those things like he didn't. So I'm, I'm sure that's part of what's in the back of my mind when I write a check or go to a show is, well, you know, these people are out here doing this. They're living their dream, something they really want to do. My dad couldn't do that. So he and my mom met dancing and... They they love theater and art, and so I think I was five or six when they would take me down to what is now the Ordway, and there used to be like Broadway touring companies, I guess, and they would, um, you know, they would threaten me with bodily harm if I didn't behave. So I learned how to behave in a theater. And if you can do one thing that makes you happy, even if it's not 100 percent of the time, that's so fortunate. Everyone can be an artist in their own way. So some people can express themselves through their work in whatever field they're in. There's art involved in tax law, I think, in a certain way. <laughs> but <laughs> people definitely try to interpret the law in a way that benefits them in the best way that they can. And there's a lot of creative uh, ideas that go into that. <laughs> when I was in college, I had a professor who... He would always tell us, if there's anything else that you enjoy doing, quit right now and go do that thing. Because this is super hard. It's going to be not fun sometimes. And he was totally right. It's one of those things where if, you, if you're if you into numbers and you think being an, an accountant would be fun, uh, 
you should do that definitely because being an actor is or being a a theater practitioner is very difficult and it doesn't pay (laughs) a ton of money you know you're not going to be rich so it's definitely for people who that's your only thing that you can imagine doing Generally, I was very quiet person, so I was also like the target of like bullies everywhere I went. The thing that used to annoy me the most was when people would be like, you know, so are you are you trying to be Brad Pitt or you know <laughs> like that that kind of stupid stuff. Like those those kind of comments were the ones that really annoyed me because it made it seem like it wasn't a real thing in their brain. So they clearly, when they would say stuff like that, it. it told me that they just thought it was a silly thing that I was eventually going to quit yeah that's so true we're told that like there's only one way that your life is supposed to go when all that you have to go on is the movie stars the tv stars those are the only people that you know who really do this then of course it makes sense that they would be like well that must be what you want to do and if you didn't do it then it then your life didn't work out the way you wanted it to. I definitely have people in my life who aren't in the arts who don't get it. Who like when I am doing a show, they're just like, "Oh, you're you're still doing that. You're still uh, still plugging away at that theater thing." And no matter like how big the opportunity gets, they're just like, well, "Yeah, okay. Uh, so how's your job going?" What they don't understand is how difficult it is and how many different things you can do besides just be a movie star and still have a really satisfying career in the arts. Moving out of the house, going to college, meeting people who are like more encouraging of self-expression in general. I think that kind of pushed me to want to try it. As I get older and as I have been able to keep doing the things that I that I love, you do. You have this change of perspective. You you realize that maybe there were certain things you wanted for your life a family or a house by the time you're 25 or or 401k that like might not be there for you or maybe not yet so now what you're a failure (laughs) it's okay not to have everything that you've ever wanted in life at this exact moment we don't have a ton of money but we we do we pay our bills i have three siblings and they all have kids or they're all married and and they there is this element of like so do you have anyone in your life and i'm like no, I, I am alone, but I am happy. You know, like, I, I do not need to define myself as lacking. You know, I feel, I feel actually a little teary as you, as you even asked that. Um, get a little catch in my throat here. But um, there is something about the human species and our, um, I think we have a natural proclivity toward the appreciation of creativity and beauty and and I use beauty in a very broad sense. Uh, I just went to a conceptual art show at the Walker, which I just just like blew my mind. And it would not be considered beautiful in a traditional sense, but beautiful in the way that it speaks to the human experience. But I don't know why. Why do I buy so much more visual art than could possibly fit on my tiny apartment wall, which I have salon style ceiling to floor and my office and my storage room is full of art that is an an odd compulsion to do that i had one particular friend who asked me 
maybe semi-judgmentally, but I think she was genuinely curious. And I, I, I never will forget her question is, why do you need so much entertainment is the word she used. And she was not a consumer of the arts, performance, visual, literary, really anything. And I thought to myself, I don't think of it as entertainment. For me, saying why is art important to you and this sounds, you know, like overstated and cheesy, but I really mean it. It's like saying, why is uh, food and sleep and air important to, to you? It's like a commodity to me. It's what sustains me and uh, helps me understand the world. I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but um, that's what art does right there. Just thinking about it. Um, humans... Um, I don't know what I could say in your podcast. Let's say, say, say uh, humans are uh, crazy right now. Uh, I mean, uh, just the human species is not at our best, I think, right now. And so just the fact that art exists, that there are these angels who write plays, who compose music, who perform it, who direct it, who, you know, send out their postcards and for their sometimes little houses of six people. And, and it's just, it's just to me, it's, it's just uh, an affirmation of what the human spirit can do and of what we can, we can be, we can aspire to be. So are you still wondering, what is The Fringe? Maybe this will help. The Fringe is the best 11 days of the summer. It's just like this cornucopia of venues and talent. Artists and forms. And and such a full human experience that you can get in such a short time span. There's kids shows and there's comedy and there's drama and there's one person shows and there's musicals and there's big shows with lots of people and there's small shows with maybe one or two people. And um, it just is really... Uh, a chance to try and sample a lot of different things and see if live entertainment is for you. You encounter things that, for me, have been thought-provoking that I probably wouldn't have gone to if I didn't have the freedom. I love the creativity and innovation of fringe artists. You get 60 minutes, you get 10 minutes set up, you get 10 minute breakdown, and you get those three hours of tech. And what you do with that? Just in a simple evening, if you, you know, if you hit the right shows, you... You literally might laugh, cry, see somebody dance, and, uh, and, and you know, just go home buzzing. People go to it in their shorts and sandals because it's summer, so they're, they're wearing T-shirts, shorts, and sandals when they're standing in line to go into the shows. So it's not all dressy. There have been artists who I was introduced to through the Fringe. For example, one is Threads Dance Company, the Cold Hearts who come into town and do Edgar Allen. Seeing them at the Fringe the first time and then seeing them at the Twin Cities Horror Fest and back and forth. People and artists and performance companies who I never would have known about otherwise except for the fringe. We don't take a lot of risks in terms of when we spend money on art. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's an investment, right? We're gonna, we have only so much money and we're going to spend it on this concert or that theater show or that movie. And it's not, let's go see what this is like. It might be awful, you know, and put our hard-earned money down for that. Here's the thing about the fringe is I want to say a few years ago, it's probably been seven or eight years no go now. Um, there was someone who did yo-yo tricks and it's yes. like, that was a good show. 
but you never know what you're going to expect. And and I don't know that I would have said, well, you know, I'm going to pay my 10 or 12 or $15 for yo-yo tricks, but I had a pass, so why not? That's part of it, and you can do that and experiment and be that kind of an audience member where you're like, I have no idea what this is, but I'm just going to... It'll be over in an hour, you know, and it's great. A lot of work in the Fringe Festival is brand new. It's an experimental lab to put something in front of an audience and see what happens. It did surprise me. It's a really great place for everyone to kind of grow and just play with stuff. And it allows you to see such a wide range of work in a very short time. I mean, I saw a show a couple years ago, uh, The Seven Samurai. Seven by seven? Yes. Yeah, it was a one-man show, and it was a mime. A friend of mine saw it and said, Victoria, you have to see the show. Really? The description does not look like my kind of show. (laughs) Five minutes in, I was enthralled. Loved that show. Still think about that show. I've seen big musicals. I've seen the Bollywood dance on that stage, and I've I've seen that. And both are beautiful and equally valid and gorgeous expressions of something they want to tell and and that's the same stage you know Bollywood which is uh, for those who don't know Bollywood has become a huge thing at the fringe where this group comes in and they they do a Bollywood style show man um and it's fun yeah and it's you know it's tons of people and like big dance numbers and flashy costumes and then there's this one guy doing mime and I look at those juxtaposition of those two shows on the same stage, yeah. even, and I'm like, ah, I love both of them equally in different ways. All in one week. Wild. Really amazing. Fringe is opportunity. Bear. You have been listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Of course, Thanks to the Minnesota Fringe for the opportunity to make the original Fringe cast series. You can find out more about this show at the website. Go to questionpodcast.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>